0: Let's start the message. I have a question to begin our time. Does God hate sin? Yes, He does. He does. And even the youngest believer can be introduced to this concept. He hates sin because He sees the devastating effects that it has on His creation. He hates sin because He sees the death, destruction, and despair that it it leaves behind. Perhaps the greatest reason, though, that God hates sin is because it compromises His glory. And it stands diametrically opposed to everything that He represents. With this reality in mind, I do have an additional question to ask you as we begin our study this morning. If God hates sin so much, then how do you think He feels about someone who causes someone else to get caught up in sin. And if I can get a little more specific, how do you think God feels about someone causing a believer, someone who has been purchased by the precious blood of his son, to get caught up in sin? Today, in Mark chapter 9, we have arrived at one of the most radical passages in all of Scripture. It's radical because it reflects how seriously the Lord views someone who causes a believer to get trapped in sin. It is so disturbing that Jesus uses very graphic images to us about the danger. Well, let's see just how radical it is, and start by reading it together. Mark chapter nine, verses forty-two to fifty. If you're not already there, and before I read it, I'm going to let you know that I am going to be skipping verses forty-four. And 46 and if depending on your translation you might see these in brackets and they were added at a later point they weren't in the earliest and best manuscripts and when we cover verse 48 which is uh, really um saying the exact same thing i'll talk about at the end of the message why those ended up being inserted at a later point well let's read it to get started mark 9 42 through 50 reads Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. Verse 45. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched you'll notice in your bulletin the title of our message and it's flashing with red lights i wish there was a way to do that somehow put it on the bulletin paper so that it was just like an alert sign warning 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 that's what this passage is is doing in essence scandalon alert And after we just read it, I believe that we've been introduced to just how serious causing another believer to sin or get entangled in sin is in God's eyes. And you might be wondering what scandalon means. And of course, I'm going to explain this Greek word in just a few moments. But let's begin our time and pray and ask God to bless our study of His word. Father, we come to you again as needy children, begging you for the work of your Holy Spirit to take place in our hearts and in our minds. We pray that the serious tone of this passage would heighten our sensitivity to sin, and that we would take away a clear understanding and a clear application of Your Word to our spiritual walks. We pray that Your Word would function as a spiritual mirror, helping us to see our need for Christ and the joys of walking in newness of life with You. We pray also that You would expose the lust and sins in our hearts so that we can continue to grow spiritually and give You more glory. We praise You for Your faithfulness to us and ask that You would strengthen us to be more faithful to You. And we ask this in Your Son's precious name. Amen. Well, in Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 48, Jesus is going to share three graphic pictures so that you see the danger of being scandalon. What scandalon is? We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Scandalon to other believers. The three graphic pictures are drowning, amputation, and eternal damnation. And if that's not enough to capture our attention, I think we're in, in real trouble scandalon is a greek word that means stumbling block or trap and it's a the noun form of the verb scandalizo which gets translated to stumble in the new american standard or to sin in the esv it is used in every single verse of our passage today with the exception of verse 38 in the parallel account of this passage we see the noun form in Matthew 18:7 when Jesus says, "Woe to the world because of its scandalon, stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that scandalon, stumbling blocks come, but woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes." Notice who Jesus puts the responsibility upon. He says initially, "Woe to the world as he introduces it at the beginning of the verse, and then he expands on it. And, and by the end of the verse, he says, But woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. Again, the emphasis is on people. Our kids are currently going through what I would call this spider phase. I don't know if any other families with young kids have kids that are, are obsessed with finding and looking for spiders. But I I really do believe that they inherited this from their mother. And Victoria, I'm not kidding you, she is a spider hawk. In our last place, um, when we lived up in the San Fernando Valley, there was this set of bushes outside of our house that always had black widows near it. And I am not kidding you, at nighttime, she could spot a black widow (laughs) from a mile away. And I have pretty good eyesight, and I'm just like, how? In the world, can you see that? Well, we all know what happens. And our kids, they, they, when, when uh, spiders set up their web and something flies into it, and so I think that is what intrigues our kids. They like to just look and see if it's, it's caught anything. And we know what happens when that, when that occurs. They get caught. They get entangled in the web, and they're unable to escape. Scandalon is like a spider in its web, and they both function together. The spider would represent unsaved people in this world, and the web would represent spiritually hazardous and sinful traps that they set for believers. Scandalon doesn't just cause a person to sin one time, but it entangles them and causes a pattern of sin in a believer's life so much so that it could even bring a person to shipwreck in their faith. And this explains the serious tone of this passage and the radically graphic pictures that Jesus provides. The first picture that we're going to look at is drowning. And Jesus uses that so that we can see the danger of scandal onto other believers. Look at verse 42. Our Lord says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble... It would be better for him if, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. Whoever, again, is a pronoun that is reflecting people. It's not whatever. It's whoever. And so we know that it's people who are ultimately in view. The threat and destiny of hell in our context affirms this as well. One of these little ones who believes refers to believers. And it actually is pointing backward to the man who was casting out demons in our previous passage. Children of God, all believers, are technically little ones. I'm a little one of God. Everyone who believes and trusts in the Lord is a little one. It reflects humble believers. And the humble believer in our last study, you may recall, was contrasted with the spiritually proud disciples who tried to hinder him from doing ministry because he was outside their ministry circle. And Jesus used this experience and is still using it to teach his disciples another spiritual lesson. Last week, he helped them to see that ministry is bigger than they are. Much, much bigger than they are. And he instructed them specifically not to hinder the man. He specifically said in verse 40 that he who is not against us is for us. And we briefly talked about what that meant. And, and, and learned that due to spiritual pride, that oftentimes it can create a suspicion of other ministries. And that we can be tempted to doubt or, or, or to even judge other ministries that aren't like ours, right? Talked about that. Was that those that were here. Hopefully we we felt the weight of that, the significance of that. The same spiritual pride is what caused the disciples to look down upon and cast suspicion upon this, this nameless exorcist who was faithfully casting out demons in Jesus' name. And here in verse 42, his faith is even authenticated by the Lord. And the principle that the Lord would have us take away, that he was trying to get his disciples to take away, was the bigger picture of salvation and gospel ministry. And to make sure that we're, we're, we're not confused and that we're not against people who are on our side, who are battling with us. It's just because we happen to think, well, hey, they're not in our ministry circle. They're, they're, they're beyond. They're, they're, they're outside the camp. And as we learn, there are some who have different views on eschatology on ecclesiology. Yet if they're faithful to preach the gospel and they're doing their best to make dis- disciples, even though they may have secondary doctrines that differ from ours, then Jesus wants us not to lose sight of this, that they're still for us. And this is why pastors John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul, uh, those who are familiar with those two men, they, they, they have fellowship. Because they're united in the gospel, even though they have some radically different theological views. One of them related to credo-baptism versus paedo-baptism, or putting it in layman's terms. John MacArthur believes believes in um, adult believer's baptism by immersion. R.C. Sproul believes in paedo-baptism. He believes in baptizing infants and sprinkling and the, the covenantal aspects that come with that, where... MacArthur would take a a dispensational view as it relates to baptism. And so, they still come together for fellowship. They, They still speak at the same conferences. And even though they would probably never be together on staff at the same church due to their differing theological convictions they're still accepting of each other's ministries and they respect each other. And that is a mark of their spiritual maturity. And that is a desire that the Lord would have us as we have a ministry outlook that we would grow in our discernment as well. That everyone who's outside of the camp, that we wouldn't just automatically cast them into suspicion and doubt and be judgmental, but we would take our times to see what is actually occurring. And we talked about this last week. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden we just accept every single ministry that names the name of Christ. There are many ministries that don't honor a true biblical gospel. And consequently, what? They're against us. They're, they're really against Christ and the gospel. And that's why Christ use, used us in that, making a reference, right? We're, we're on the same team. We're on the same page. Make sure that you see that. But there are ministries that we can never accept because of their view of the gospel and the false teaching. Roman Catholicism, Greek Orthodox churches, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, the, the Word of Faith movement, the list of, and, and there's a TV station, TBN, and there's a lot of Word of Faith preachers that are on there. but. It would be your Benny Hens, Joel Osteen, Creflo Dollar type preachers who we would not accept because they are preaching another gospel. And in the end, as a result, they're rejecting Christ. And so they're against us. And this, my friends, is why discipleship is absolutely vital. Because as you nail down the, the, the gospel truths in your life and in your heart and in your thinking, you, there's going to be precision that's going to be cultivated. You'll be linked with ministry, good ministry. You'll be discipled and you'll be grown in such a way that you'll be able to look out and you'll be able to see who is for us and who is against. And if you're young in the Lord and you're wondering who you should partner with or you think about going to a different church, that's where you want to appeal to elders and pastors or church leadership, somebody who can help you to discern. We need to be equipped to discern between the two. And this is where God's word and spiritual growth provides guidance and discernment for us. Well, what does this have to do with our passage this week? Everything. Everything. Scandalon also reflects those who entangle believers in false teaching. Look back at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, again, scandalizo is the verb here. It is an aorist, active, subjunctive verb. And all God's people said, what is that? Right? Aorist, active, subjunctive verb. And it means something. What it means is it's a completed action. It's a past completed action with continuing results. And what happens with the scandal on is that it's a past completed a- action. A believer was introduced to some form of teaching, introduced right to or, 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 a, a false gospel, right? And all of a sudden, it is a cause of perpetual stumbling into the future, this is very, very serious. How serious, you ask? Well, I want you to imagine going out on a boat in the middle of the sea. And on the boat with you is an Olympic barbell with, loaded with Olympic plates, 45-pound plates. You ever seen that? right? Super heavy. The bar even bends and you're trying to pick it up. There's collars on the end that lock it on and hold it in place. And you go out to the middle of the sea and on one end of the the, the chain is a clasp and it gets clasped around your neck. And then on the other end is another clasp and it gets clasped inseparable from that barbell. And then what happens next? Tossed overboard into the sea. unbelievable. That serious. This is what Jesus is, is referring to. He's saying it would be better for this to happen to a person than for them to cause a little one to stumble. Look at the middle of verse 42. He says, it would be better for him if, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. And most of us aren't familiar with millstones, so I decided to use the Olympic barbell. Yeah, and some of you may not even be familiar with that. So I did a little bit more research, and I have a picture that I want to show you of what a millstone looked like during the time of Christ. And if we can cue that up. Okay, it's not working. Okay. All right. Uh, we'll send out an email with a picture at a later point <laughs> of what it looks like. Let me uh, just try to describe it for you. It's Basically, there would be a pole, and it might be mounted to the roof, and it might be inside, but it might just go straight up. And there would be this round circular stone that laid in this circular trough. And a pole would go through, and then the pole would come out on the other side. And what would happen is a beast of burden, um, a mule, a donkey, an ox, they used everything, horses, cattle. Would be fastened and yoked, and then it would just start walking around in circles, and it would pull that wheel around, and that millstone would crush the grain as it went around, and that's that's how they would break it up. Grain was really hard; it was it was hard to break up. And I also had another picture, but it was of a I found a picture of somebody who creatively. Um, showed a picture of someone with a millstone around their neck and and going down in the sea. And that is exactly what the disciples pictured. Was this millstone, it probably would have weighed anywhere from several hundred pounds to uh, maybe an excess of a ton, had a circular, it would be better to clasp that around your neck and to be tossed into the sea. Jesus is saying that that would be better than causing a believer to get entangled into sin. And this was absolutely terrifying for the Jews. James Edwards writes, The millstone imagery was doubly dreadful for the Jews, who as a rule feared the sea and regarded drowning as a horrible form of death. Hurling a sinner to a watery grave was a graphic way for Jesus to convey the finality of God's wrath against spiritual pride end quote." And if you think about Jewish history, some of the, the greatest forms of God's judgment, right, have involved drowning. God flooded the entire earth in judgment, sparing only Noah and his family. The Israelites, when they, were, when they were fleeing, God's people were fleeing. The Egyptians pursued them. God d- divides the, the Red Sea. They go right down the middle of it. And then God allows the Egyptian army to be swallowed in judgment as they pursued them. So drowning was absolutely horrific from their perspective. Well, there's a second image. Or should I say set of images that Jesus uses so that the danger of scandal on or stumbling blocks to other believers can be noted. The first is drowning. The second in your outline is amputation. And here you're going to see a transition in our text. In verse 42, Jesus uses this general subject when he's talking about whoever it's a, a reference just to the, the, those in the general population. Now he shifts gears and begins pointing to the disciples by using you. And his use of this singular second person pronoun summons the attention of each individual disciple. And it should summon our individual attention as well. Verses 43, 45, 47 all reflect some sort of amputation taking place. And we need to see them collectively as well as individually. Let's read them again together so we can see this pattern that's taking place. Jesus says, if your hand causes you to stumble, verse 43, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than having two feet to be cast into hell. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast in the hell. You see the contrast that's taking place? He references body part where there's two. Right? There's this contrast. For and against. Right? I want you to, to, to grasp that. While it's true that these verses feature the seriousness of sin, and there are certainly principles that we can apply to our spiritual walks We need to understand the bigger picture as it's related to our context. Scandalon and hell is being emphasized throughout this passage and the threat that Scandalon poses to other believers. And so Jesus is continuing to warn his disciples about their spiritual pride here and the impact that their example can have on other believers. Just as it was impacting this little believer in our context. This, This can't be ignored. The goal of this passage isn't to instill fear so that believers question their salvation when they sin with their, with their hands, feet, and eyes. It's, it's not the primary purpose. The primary purpose is so that the disciples understand the danger of scandal on to other believers. And who are they currently being scandal on to in our context? Who were they? The man who was casting out demons, right? They are hindering a man from doing ministry in the name of Jesus. And so this is why he's continuing to teach them this lesson. Their spiritual pride, to make their own names great, to be recognized, was Pharisee-like. And so Jesus is addressing it. And the greatest source of scandal on in their day stemmed from the scribes and the Pharisees due to their spiritual pride. You'd think that it would come from the world, but it actually wasn't. It was from the religious. And when the disciples were hindering this little one, this true believer from doing ministry, in essence their spiritual pride was causing this man to stop ministering because he was outside their ministry circle. And this is exactly what the scribes and the Pharisees did. Their spiritual pride set up all these restrictions, all these regulations, so that it was impossible to to function in faith, to function within the realm that the the law provided. The law, as we learned in the past, it was meant to, to, to protect and to guide It wasn't meant to to restrict and regulate and cut off life. The pharisaical system set up this ministry circle which harshly judged those who functioned outside of it. And this is why, in the end, they would be condemned. And this is why, personally, I believe that Jesus uses the example of hands, feet, and eyes. The scribes and Pharisees set up so many restrictions about what could and couldn't be touched with the hands. Recall this: the Mishnah and the Talmud recorded and imposed hundreds and hundreds of restrictions on top of the law. Hand washing—you remember—we talked about this at the back when we preached at the beginning of Mark seven. You're invited to go back and listen to that message if you want to learn more about some of these restrictions. There were times where, depending on what they would eat during a meal, that they would, might have to wash their hands several times. And Jesus is helping the disciples see that this is how Scandalon can impact your hands. He's also saying not only can it impact your hands, but according to verse 45, it can also impact your feet. Again, we've learned in the past, the scribes and Pharisees impose Sabbath restrictions as to how far people could walk on the Sabbath. You were limited to 2,999 steps on the Sabbath. And you better not go over, or you're in sin, no matter where where you're trying to go. Your feet were limited by where you could walk. You couldn't walk on Gentile soil. There were all these restrictions for foot washing as a result, right? Loaded upon them again added on top of the law to burden and restrict God's people. Then, of course, there was scandal on related to your eyes. External observances that were imposed on God's people. The scribes and the Pharisees meticulously watched the people to see, to make sure that they were were doing everything correctly. As they, in their spiritual pride, judged God's people, making sure that they were following their example, following their tradition, following their external regulations. And again, all of this was on top of the law. It was a burden. And notice the damning effect of each the disciples were indoctrinated with this scandal on consisting of teaching and the spiritual pride rooted in the religious establishment of the day. So in each instance, our Lord warns them through the use of very graphic images that, hey, if your hands, if your, if your eyes, if your feet are going to be the source of stumbling and leading by example in spiritual pride, it would be better for you to lop it off it would be better for you to cut it off we don't have our powerpoint but i was able to find some pretty graphic images of amputation that i was looking forward to showing you (laughs) that guy that, that that guy's eye coming out oh man i'm just kidding i'm just kidding Jesus is saying, it would be better, it would be better to cut your hand, foot, or eye out than to end up in hell like the spiritually proud scribes and Pharisees. And of course, the instruction to hack off body parts that cause someone to stumble is an example of of a metaphoric hyperbole characteristic of Jesus' teaching. It isn't, meant, it isn't meant to be taken literally. Body mutilation outside of men being circumcised was forbidden in Judaism according to Deuteronomy chapters 14 and 23 as well as 1 Kings 18.28 and Zechariah 13.6 if you want references. And tragically there have been some who have taken this text Literally. A renowned Scottish preacher told of a brilliant theological student who suddenly went crazy one night and cut off his hand with a razor. And when the preacher found him, he was laughing exultantly, saying, I did right. I can look Jesus in the face. Unbelievable. We cannot lose sight of the spiritual lesson that Jesus is teaching the disciples. In all three instances, the damning spiritual pride connected to the scandalon, the external influences connected to the hands, feet, or eyes is worthy of hell and worthy of amputation. And it would actually be better to suffer amputation, keeping you from leaving such an example than to be cast eternally into hell. I didn't share this earlier, but it seems like a good spot to include it. One of the reasons why I think that Jesus used that imagery of the millstone and the beast of burden, right, was I I believe that the yoke to the beast of burden was something that they would have connected to and and understood, they would have understood and saw that strain and... And we see a contrast later on in the Gospels when Jesus invites in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28-30, all those who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. Come to me and I will give you rest. Of course, with the yoke of legalism strapped around your neck, we know where it leads. And what a contrast to the yoke of Christ. The gospel frees us from legalism and the temptation to cling to our good works instead of, of Christ and our legal standing before God. And so it's good that we regularly ask ourselves the question, am I clinging to Christ and his righteousness? Am I clinging to him and his righteousness at, when it comes to my divine legal declaration before God or am I am I tempted to cling to some of these good things that I'm doing? We need to ask ourselves that question regularly. The first will send you to heaven while the latter sends you south of the border. I'm not talking about Mexico. I'm talking about damnation. Well we're going to hear more about this during second hour when Ben Winarco, our brother, talks about the doctrine of justification and how you can have a right standing before God. And if you want the cliff notes on what he's going to share, repent of your unbelief and trust completely in Christ. Amen, church? Amen. All right? That's it. But he's going to talk about the weightiness and the significance of that. And now before we move on to our third and final graphic picture, in fairness to our passage there is room for principles to be applied for a believer here. Some have proposed that Jesus used the eye, hand, and foot to cover the totality of a person. And so, there is room here to apply principles for a believer so that you and I see the seriousness of sin and how setting a bad example could be a stumbling block to another believer, even though we're not going to lose our salvation, right? We're not going to be cast headlong Into hell. But it can serve as a warning, however, if there's ongoing sin in your life, that a person could potentially end up proving that, what, they're not saved, right? R. Kent Hughes says, the hand can symbolize what we do, the foot, where we go, and the eye, what we see. And of course, the application here is unlimited. But let me just throw a few questions at you. Do my hands cause me to sin by what I do with them? Do I take items that don't belong to me? Do I use them to write text, emails, or post things that I shouldn't post? Do I use them to click on things that I shouldn't click on? Am I setting an example with my hands for other believers to follow? Or am I being like Scandalon? Do my feet cause me to sin by allowing me to go places that I shouldn't go? Do my feet keep me from walking in the counsel of the wicked or standing in the path of sinners just as Psalm 1 exhorts me? Am I running Away from sin and temptation? And again, am I setting an example for other believers to follow? Finally, my eyes. Do my eyes cause me to look at others in lustful or covetous ways? Do I look at others with pride or contempt or even hate? Do I allow my eyes to look at pornography or other vile images online? Again, are you setting an example for other believers to follow? Everything that we do, we know this. We're a biblically literate bunch. We know this. Everything that we do is what? Connected right here at the Mission Control Center. It's connected right to the heart. And if our desire is to please the Lord, and if we're struggling in an area of sin, connected to our eyes, to our hands, to our feet, can I help? Can I shepherd? There's something that you need to do. There's something that you need to do today. Okay? Not tomorrow, not next week, not next month, I'm talking about today. God would have you do something today. First, he wants you to confess your sin and repent of it, to turn from it, forsake it, renounce it, leave it. And he wants you to ask him for forgiveness. And we all know the beauty of First 1 John 1, nine. That if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And know this right now, my friend, that God, you you don't need to wait on God to be ready to forgive you. He's always ready. He's on the clock 24-7, standing there, ready and willing to forgive you. But you and I must come to him and ask him, to forgive us. Second, He wants you to confess your sin to another believer. James 5.16 Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Link arms with someone in your care group. If you're visiting our church and you don't know what a care group is, feel free to ask just about anyone after the service what a care group is, and they'll share more with you. Find someone in care group who can help you have victory and have accountability in defeating whatever sin you're facing in your life. Study the scriptures. Find the passages that address that sin. Renew your mind and be strengthened in your battle against sin in that area. And lastly, after you do those two things, God wants you to do something else. He wants you to walk in the spirit of Romans 8.1, which says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have trusted in Christ, if you are clinging to Him, God will allow you to know the rich blessing of His forgiveness the rich blessing of your fellowship restored and made right with Him once again. And if you refuse to trust in Christ and to repent of your sin, then this last graphic picture that Jesus shares in verse 48 is one that you need to see and one that you should never forget. The danger of scandal Look at verse 48. Jesus says, There is a place, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And this, of course, is a description of hell that's mentioned in verses 43, 45, and 47. And the Greek word for hell, Gehenna, is derived from a a special place, the Hinnom Valley, the steep ravine to the southwest of Jerusalem where human sacrifice had been practiced under Ahaz and Manasseh according to 2 Kings 16.3 and 2 Kings 21.6. And the practice of human sacrifice would eventually be denounced by Jeremiah and Jeremiah 7.31 and 32.35. And it would eventually be abolished according to 2 Kings 23.10. King Josiah, who desecrated the Hinnom Valley by making it into a garbage dump, and the dump remained burning as trash could be thrown into it around the clock. And so there would be a large number of people coming out to throw their trash. The fire is burning. And so in every way, it functioned just like an incinerator an incinerator would today. Right? That just kept burning. The horrible imagery of a devouring worm is also mentioned. And this is a grotesque picture of worms and maggots that consume the trash piles along with the fire. And those who lead others into sin against God are those who are destined for hell, a place where people are eternally food for worms and eternally fuel for fire. And the significance of Jesus' point in teaching here apparently led a scribe at a later point to take verse 38 and what's he do? He ends up moving it up under each one in verse 44 and verse 46. Why? Because this was the point. This was the warning. This was the flashing lights. This was the sign. Don't miss it. Scandal on alert. Scandal on alert. Scandal on alert. It doesn't change the meaning of the, of the text. But it I, I opted to save it to the end because in the Greek when something's left at the end it also brings. It, it makes it for emphasis. So James Edwards concludes by writing this, and this is an appropriate conclusion for us as well. The architectural plans of eternity are being drawn by the behavior of disciples today. Mark 9.48 is a warning against rebellion against God and a summons to faith in the present and especially to the ridding of whatever hindrances and impediments would prevent one from entering true life in the kingdom. End quote. At the beginning of the message, we began by considering how much God hates sin. May these three graphic pictures that our Savior portrayed continue to serve as warnings to us. And may we always be on the alert for scandal on. Amen, church? Amen. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, this is a very sobering passage, but it's one that's needed. It's one that allows us to celebrate you. One, because you are pure, holy, and righteous. And we know that because we have seen our need and confessed that we're sinners, and we have cried out to Christ for forgiveness and a perfect righteousness that we could never obtain on our own. You're willing to do that for anyone who will repent of their unbelief and trust in you completely. And when they do, they'll receive Christ's perfect righteousness by faith, credited and imputed to their account. And we celebrate that. And yet we also need to be on the alert. We need to be realists that there are spiders in this world and there are webs that are being cast. I can think of one giant web. The world wide web that has trapped and enslaved many people to various sins. We pray, Father, that because of the redemptive work in Christ, because of the power of your Holy Spirit that now resides within, that you would give us all spiritual discernment to understand the threat of scandal on stumbling blocks. And may it be said of our life that we would never be a stumbling block, that we would never regularly leave an example that cannot be followed by other believers. Nothing would grieve you more. We want to honor you with the high calling that you have put in our lives. Help us to walk in faithfulness. I pray for our church family. I pray for accountability. I pray for care groups as they've started up here in the last couple weeks that you would allow us to be serious about our sin as a church. That we would be faithful to confess it to you. That we would be faithful to confess it to one another and that you would allow us to experience the rich blessing and joy of, of walking in Romans 8.1, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We give you thanks and praise for this passage. We pray that the images that we saw today will continue to be embedded in our mind and in our thinking as we think about the seriousness of sin. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.